Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church Podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. All right, so good to be here. Last time I was here, I was in the school over in Kirkwood, and you guys were just getting started, and it was exciting. And this is amazing to see all of you. It's amazing to see what God's doing here. Amazing to see this new building. That's pretty cool. Um, Daniel and I are, are from similar places. He's about 45 minutes away from me in the great state of Washington. And um, when his pastor said, he said, hey, you know, we've got a young guy. He wants to do stuff, and, and we're thinking about sending him over to St. Louis to get some training. If we send him over to get training in St. Louis, he'll definitely come back to us, right? And I was like, oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> Unless he marries a girl named Natalie and feels a call in his life to move to Oman. I said those very words. It was amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. And here he, he, uh, you know, here he is. And, uh, but we're so excited to be part of a global family and sending people to be a blessing all over the world. And you're a part of that, and that's really great. I love Jubilee Church. Uh, for many, many years, I've been com- like just tremendously blessed by Jubilee Church. If you're new here today or you're just checking out Jubilee Church, one of the things you might not know right off the bat is just their heart, not just for this area, the St. Louis area, but for the other parts of the U.S. and the nations. They're just their track record of generosity and pouring into church plants and strengthening existing churches is outstanding. So well done to you all. This is such a great church and such a privilege for me to be with you. And I get the joy of preaching from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, which is on the subject that you all woke up thinking about this morning. Can I eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol? (laughs) So pray for me. 1 Corinthians, if you've been tracking in this series, and if you haven't, please do go back and watch the videos. And it's just been an amazing series that this church has done. Um, It's about unity in the church. That's what 1 Corinthians is about. It's about a church being birthed uh, in the midst of a polytheistic, uh, multi-God, multi-worldview city and, and, and the gospel coming, and how do we create unity here with people with different opinions and different viewpoints? I mean, I know it doesn't have anything to do with our American culture today, but like you can imagine if you lived among people with different opinions from you. You can imagine if you went to church with people who had different opinions. I know it's not here, but like we deal with that in the Northwest. Like, what do you mean you think that way? How do I deal with that? Like, do opinions govern or... Does something else govern how we relate to each other? So Jay Thomas, in an article he wrote on why study the book of 1 Corinthians, he writes the following. He says, the unity of the church is one of the most striking and transformative characteristics she has to offer the world. Unity is demonstrated most tangibly in love. Jesus said it this way in John 13, as he washed the feet of his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, I don't know if you realize this or not, but church unity has been under attack over the last couple of years. And actually, to be honest, church unity has been under attack since the inception of the church. 
since the birth of the church, because the evil one, the enemy, knows that Jesus has won the ultimate victory. And so he takes pot shots at his bride, trying to divide, to tear apart. And Paul is addressing this, and he begins the letter of 1 Corinthians by asking the question, he's like, look, is Christ divided? There should be no divisions among you. Now you think, wow, really? No divisions among you? What does he mean by that? Then Paul addresses several ethical issues that might be divisive that you've worked through as a church, where again, we see him calling for unity through love. Unity through love, even on these divisive issues. And then spoiler alert, the way it ends. So plug your ears if you don't want to know. But the way it ends is he begins to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. You think, well, what does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with unity? Well, it's the ultimate unity. That not only is Jesus raised from the dead, but we are raised from the dead. And the dividing wall of hostility between us and God is completely removed. And the dividing wall of hostility between you and I is completely removed. And we're in complete unity together as one. And sin and sorrow and sickness are completely removed. And we stand in unity in an eternal state with Jesus. So we come to another ethical issue. A call to unity around food sacrificed to Idols. So some of you like to take notes. Some of you like it nice and tidy. So here's my one-liner for you. Our liberties that Jesus has won for us must be governed not by our knowledge, rather by our love. Not by our knowledge, rather by our love. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the word of the Lord. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right, this liberty of yours, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother 
stumble. Our liberties that Jesus won for us must be governed not by our knowledge, rather by our love. Church leaders are often called in to, uh, to try to help with a dispute, with, to settle some sort of debate. And that was the same for Jesus in his day. They said to Jesus, hey, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Yes or no? Is it right for us to grant a certificate of divorce? Yes or no? And in the same vein, we have Paul here being asked to settle a dispute that is in the church. And if you know the story of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, they're letters that are written back and forth between the church and Paul. Like, what's your opinion on this? And tell us about this. And, and so we get these, these gifts that are given to us in the Holy Scriptures that show us, uh, like, what do we do with disputes like this one? Some say, well, I eat that meat in that temple. I love that meat from those temples. That meat is delicious. I eat it. My conscience is clean. It does not defile me. I love it. And others say, well, I used to worship in that temple. And that drums up some weird feelings in me. That drums up those feelings of when I tried so hard to be right with that God and I just felt his evil hand on my life. And I would never eat that meat. I would never consume that meat because it would defile me if I did that. And Paul, who's inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes to them. And he's trying to settle this dispute. So let me ask you before we get into that dispute, what do you know about gods? What do you know about idols? What does your worldview teach you or what has it informed you about these things? See, Corinth is a very religious city, very religious. Temples everywhere temples for this God and that God. And, and some of them were Greek gods and some of them were empirical gods like Caesar himself had a temple in Corinth. Many gods all over the city. And the challenge was that most of these gods were mean gods, cruel gods, sadistic gods. And they were angry and demanded a sacrifice and then another sacrifice and then another and then another. And so it was a lot of work to go to these temples. It was a lot of work to be right with these gods and, and try to squint, squelch the anger of this God who might prevent me from having a good harvest or fertility or wealth or uh, any of these things in life. And, and so you went time and time again to make these sacrifices. And, and maybe, maybe if I made the sacrifice in the right way and maybe if I was generous enough to this God, he would in turn show generosity to me, and I would have a harvest, and I would have fertility, and I would have wealth. And so typically in these temples, you would go and you would, you would take a bull, for instance, and a third of the bull would get burnt up just as a smell offering. Just, just burnt, gone, no one got to consume it. It just was there to make a big smell in the temple, an offering to that God. And then you would take another third of that bull, and you would cook it in that temple and you would invite friends and family and neighbor to come and to receive the goodness of this meat in the temple. And you would say things like, may this God bless us. May this God uh, give us fertility. May this God give us wealth. May this God show favor to us in this year as we enjoy the meat that is set apart for this God. And this was a really big deal because they didn't eat meat four meals a day like we do. This was on occasion. They would finally get some meat and they would invite everybody out and it was the neighborhood barbecue and, and it was a big, big celebration. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. 
Is it okay for a Christian to participate in that? See, they, one of the things they would say is, by ingesting this meat, I'm ingesting my God. I'm taking my God inside me. Is it okay for a Christian to participate in that? And on top of that, the last third of the bull would be sold in the, in the marketplace. Cheap. It was cheaper than the regular meat in the marketplace. So you could go to the marketplace and say, hey, give me some of that, that sacrifice meat, that day-old stuff that's a little cheaper than the good stuff. And you would take it home and you would eat it and you would consume it and it was sacrificed. It had been set apart for a foreign god. What do we do with that? Well, in the midst of that culture, Paul the apostle shows up and he preaches a message that is so countercultural to the message I just preached to you. He comes to them and he says to them, there is a God, he's alive, he's a father, and he loves you. You know how we know he loves you? He sent his one and only son to die for your sins, not just to forgive your sins for one week, but for eternity. And not just to forgive your sins, but to give you his righteousness because he was the obedient, perfect son. And now you are clothed in all of his goodness and all of his righteousness and your identity is in there. And we're no longer killing bulls and goats. We have once and for all a sacrifice and his name is Jesus and he has come for us and he has given us his spirit that we now receive and take in his Holy Spirit. We are a new creation. We're no longer worried about does he love me? Does he not? Will he show me favor? Will he not? We have a good and gracious and kind God. And hundreds left the worship of all the temples and came to worship this God that Paul preached about. This good and gracious and kind God. And they form what's called the church. And you can only imagine how messy it is. And the, the backgrounds that they had and the different opinions that they had. And, and Paul tells us, he, he, he says, when it comes to these things and idols, he says, what's wrong with that, Paul? Well, he says in verses one through three again, he says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that, and if you, in your Bibles, there should be quotes there, all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So he's quoting. Why is he quoting? Well, most likely theologians would believe he's quoting for one or two reasons. One, he's quoting from a letter they wrote to him. So you said this in your letter. I'm going to quote it and respond to it. Or it's just a phrase that often is used in Corinth that he's addressing. And, Paul, and he says, listen, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. Now he's not down on knowledge. If you've ever read Paul, you're like, man, this guy's brilliant. He's not down on knowledge. The point of knowledge, though, isn't to puff up. The point of knowledge is to stir in us an affection for the word of God, for God himself, for his son Jesus, for the presence of his Holy Spirit, and listen, for each other. That's why knowledge exists. Knowledge exists, in other words, so that we can love God and love our neighbors, as Jesus said in the great commandment. This was the good news that he brought to us. Knowledge puffs up on its own. This is for the sake of loving Jesus and loving our neighbors more fully. That's why we have knowledge. In our day and age, people can be so fluent in church doctrines, church beliefs, so fluent in cultural issues, but lack fluency in love. 
And he says, these fluencies of the Bible and who God is and the doctrines of the church and cultural issues should lead us to love, not to a disdain for people, not for a hatred of God, but toward a greater love for God and for people. John, the apostle who spent the most quality time with Jesus, we're told, He's trying to describe God. In 1 John uh, chapter 4, 7 through 8, the description, he's, he's just trying to like, let me tell you about God. And he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. If anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. I mean, he's trying so hard to communicate. What what was Jesus like? The image of the unseen God when you spent time with him, what was he like? He is love. He's not just loving. He is love. This theme in 1 Corinthians is knowledge without love is so useless. Knowledge without love is so useless. Just like he's going to go on to say later in this book, like spiritual gifts, even being like really spiritually attuned to things and spiritually alert without love, it's useless. So he goes on to say in uh, verses four through six, he says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, quote. And then, quote, there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods, many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. See, again, you have quotes. You have quotes around the word idol and quotes around the word gods. There is no God but one. See, Paul is addressing specific questions that are being asked. And Paul's basically saying, not so fast. There is one God, but what he means by one God doesn't mean just one God only, but there's one God above all gods. There's one King above all kings, one Lord above all lords. His name is Yahweh. His name is the Father of the Son, Jesus. But he says, not so fast. There are some other gods out there. There are some other idols out there, and we shouldn't be so quick to dismiss these things. So you ask, well, let's take a deeper look. at What does that mean? What does the Bible mean by gods, plural? Well, let me move quickly through this and just give you a taster for it. But Genesis 1 is the, the first description. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word God there is the word Elohim. Say Elohim. Elohim is the word for God. Now, here's the tricky part of the Hebrew. Not that I'm fluent in Hebrew, but here's the tricky part with this word Elohim. Elohim can mean God singular, or it can mean God plural, and you don't add an S to it. The only way you know if it's singular or plural is by the context in which it's said in. Cool, huh? I don't, yeah. For example, Exodus 12, 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. That word gods is the same word in Genesis 1, Elohim. It's not written with a plural indication or not. It's just within the context we know they had multiple gods. But what we do find throughout the scriptures is that our God, 
Our God identifies himself and differentiates himself from all the other gods. So again, in Exodus chapter 20, he's giving the Ten Commandments and he says, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God. In other words, I'm the Lord, Yahweh, your Elohim. So not just I am a God. He says, I am Yahweh, your Elohim. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Again, specifically describing himself. I'm the one who brought you out of that place. I'm not just a God among the gods. I am your God, Yahweh, your Elohim. And then he goes on to say, even in verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. And then he begins to talk about carved images. And you think, why in the world is he starting his top 10 list of things to not to, if it's just wood and it's just uh, engraved images, if it's just some nonsense of making an image of a God, why is he so passionately saying, don't worship those? Well, because what we find, it seems that there's, in some cases, idols or statues or physical uh, uh, descriptions of a God that there are. They symbolize real spiritual beings. That there are real evil spirits symbolized within these idols out there. That they're not just wood and, and metal. And I know that's hard for us to get our heads around in our kind of post-enlightenment world. But recently we had our summer camp with our youth group over the summer and we just had an amazing time. God just came and met with them in amazing ways. And one of the girls in that youth group uh, like began to just feel this deep conviction over her life that her and her friends had gotten into some tarot cards and some fortune telling type stuff. And they were just like, it's just fun. We're, we're just messing around and we just like them and they're kind of funny and we joke around with each other. Well, they became very serious about them. They began to actually start to use them, start to rely on them. And this girl who was in our church began to hear a voice in her head as she walked by people. And that voice in her head would say evil things about the people that walked by her. And all of a sudden, it wasn't a joke anymore. And she was given over to this whole thing of like, I'm trusting that these cards will tell me something about this person. And it was never uplifting. It was never encouraging. It was never good. It was evil. And we prayed with her and people got around and prayed with her and said, who do you think that voice is? Who do you think is speaking to you? Jesus wants to speak to you right now. Jesus wants to speak to you encouragement and blessing and build you up and set you free from these things. Because it's not a joke. And Paul is saying, slow down before we just throw it all away and say, yeah, of course eat the meat. It's nothing. He says, hold on, time out. Let's talk about this. See, in Deuteronomy 6, 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, our Elohim, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. He's not saying there's only one God. He's saying he's the one above all the, ones, all the others. He's the one who reigns and rules and sits on a throne that is, that is not up for grabs. He's the one above all of them. Well, Yahweh, our Elohim, our God, he, he is worthy of our worship. 
He's worthy of our praise. And Paul is desperate for them to say like, hey, this, this isn't just you kind of inheriting a new faith where you know, we get one of the gods and, and, and he's like ranked in the top 10 usually, but never really wins like KU basketball. You know, like he's, he's kind of good, but not the, the one. But it's, it's our lot in life and you dance the one, with the one you came with, right? That's just the way it goes. No, he's saying he's the one. He's the one above all gods. This is why we worship him. This is why we worship him and him alone. Simply put, in the Gospels, Jesus has several encounters with the demonic. And he never loses one of those encounters. He never goes away and says, man, that guy got the best of me. I'm gonna come back tomorrow and give it another shot. But no, each time he comes and he delivers that person from evil, from demons, from evil spirits who oftentimes are called gods. And Paul says, there are other principalities. There are other powers at work. These idols are not to be joked around with. But then he says in verses seven through eight, going back to meat, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. He's saying, look, some of you are still going to the temple. The weak among us, the brothers and sisters that Jesus died for are still going to the temple, not just eating, but they're really hoping that this God is pleased with them through this sacrifice. They're really hoping, not only is God our Father pleased with Jesus' sacrifice, but I hope this God also and there's this kind of duality going on here where they're saying, no, I, I, I'm not messing around. I really want this God to be happy with me. And he's saying, that's not us. That's not us. And he says, food will not commend us to God. Food will not commend us to God. Eating meat in the, in the temple will not commend you from God. And it won't take you away from God. But as we all know, if you eat a lot of it, it'll get you to God faster. So two things, he says, can you eat meat? And Paul says, yes, you can eat the meat, but the real issue isn't about the meat. He says, don't say I'm mature because I understand things and yet I'm leading my weaker brothers and sisters into death. Looking down on someone, categorizing someone, some, saying some are spiritual in this church and some are not, some get it, some don't. That's division, and he says, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. And the desire in most of us and the desire in me in, in this life for me is just like, just tell me what's right and what's wrong and I'm gonna go with what's right. But that's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying it's more nuanced than that and catch the nuance. It's more about loving people than it is about being free in your liberties. Oof. Food will not commend us to God. Paul is rendering all foods spiritually neutral. That is fine. That is good. That is clear. And we can all think of examples in the church around that. You know, touchy subjects like alcohol. You know, we've just been through all the different stuff that's gone on in our culture. Like what is right to do and what is wrong to do? And, and, and he's saying, look, the point isn't that you just have knowledge of this, is that you're governed, the thing that governs 
your uh, acting out of your liberties isn't your knowledge of whether it's right or wrong. It's the love you have for other people. That you're not leading these people into death. We had a community group meeting uh, at someone's house and, and they, they like to put out um, a few beers and some wine during the community group and uh, we didn't really know that was happening, but they, they did that. And, and so I get a phone call one night. They had a new person show up at their community group who's absolutely enraged because she came to their group and they offered her a beer or a glass of wine. And I said, I'm so sorry that's happened to you. Tell me why you're so upset about that. Well, because I was married to a man for 20 years who would get drunk and beat the heck out of me every night. And so you can say, oh, she's a legalist. She doesn't get it. We're free in Christ. Really? Really? At the expense of loving this woman who has been tormented for the last 20 years? It's about love, not your liberties. It doesn't matter what you put in your mouth, Paul says. That doesn't make you more or less spiritual. But here it is. And give us ears to hear, Lord. Verses 9 through 13, one more time, he says, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food legitimately offered to idols, believing that he needed that offering? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience, which when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is spiritual maturity. This is Paul saying, I can eat as much meat as I want, but I will choose not to if it causes someone to stumble. See, our liberties that Jesus has won for us can't be governed by our knowledge. It has to be governed by our love. Laying down rights. Um, I showed up late to this. It was Brian's fault. Um, and I don't know what worship songs you sang, but downtown, I was there this morning, and downtown, they sang a song, and a portion of it was in Spanish. Did you guys do that? Okay. So um, <laughs> a portion of it was in Spanish. And I don't speak Spanish. I, I took two years of Spanish in high school, and I can't find my way out of a, you know, anyway, so here's the thing. You could be annoyed by that. You can be like, why are we singing in Spanish? We speak English here. Well, somebody in that group, somebody in our family, somebody who we call brother and sister is extremely blessed by singing in Spanish because they connect with God through Spanish. And I liken that to, for our family, I have three boys and for their birthday, they get to pick dinner that night. They get to pick their meal. Right? And so the older ones tend to bully the little ones and say, like, don't you like Chick-fil-A? Chick-fil-A is the best, don't you think? And the little one's like, I want a cheeseburger. Like, oh. But real maturity comes when my oldest one allows my youngest one to pick a meal that he doesn't like because he's so happy that it's his birthday and he feels loved by that meal. That's maturity. I'll let you know when it happens. But that, <laughs> that is maturity. In a culture that teaches us only about self-love, you be you, you get yours, you do what's right for you. Oh, come on, church. 
Come on, church. We should be doing well and loving others, laying down our life for others. Let me finish. Let me give Paul the last word in Philippians chapter two, verse one through eight. And it might help you just to close your eyes just to hear these words afresh if you'd like. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Folks, we live in a culture that's basically saying, if you, have a, if you share my opinion, you love me. If you have a different opinion from me, you don't love me. May it not be so in the church. May it not be so in the church. Opinions don't define love. Sacrifice, laying down the work of Jesus Christ in your life and in my life define love. May we not get caught up in the things of this world, leading people astray. You must think like I think for me to love you. Well, the church will not take ground if we do that. We need to love and we need to have it on full display in our schools, in our homes, in our workplaces. You may differ from me, but I'm gonna lay down my life and love you. Jesus, we wanna be that kind of church. Jesus, we want to have you and your method of laying down your life formed in us. Come and help us, Lord. Come and help us. Come and help us to be more loving toward others, more concerned about them than our opinion. For your glory, for your namesake, and for the eternity of their souls, may we lay down our lives for this place. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.